0: At this time, I'd like to read our scripture for this morning, so would you please stand with me? Our scripture this morning is found in Genesis chapter 4, and it's verses 2 to 5. It says this, Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. This is God's word. You may be seated. I'll I'll pray for you, Joe. All right. (laughs) God, I pray for Pastor Joe this morning as he comes to share your word. I thank you for the work that you've done in him during the preparation. Lord God, I pray you would uh, bless us and help us to uh, leave changed by your word and by your spirit, and uh, just give him strength as he uh, presents to us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
1: Thank you, Mark. All right. So today, you are getting the first of a two-part series on giving. Normally it's not uncommon in, in churches for someone other than the main pastor to, to give such a, a message because sometimes pastors will feel that it, it seems self-serving to challenge the congregation to, to give or give more, or give more earnestly. But um, that is not Kyle's problem. He knows the word of God and he has he's a courage. <clears throat> but um, So he will be presenting the second part of this next week. And I'm giving a survey, uh, some background of the Bible for what I'm calling milestones in the offering. Um, All right, so let's get started. All right, you might be asking why. Why do we feel the need to, to preach about giving? Is it really necessary? Don't we have business meetings to do this? Can't we send out you know, news through the email and, and messaging like we do for our members. Um, do we really need to take up a Sunday service or two Sunday services to talk about such a worldly topic? Good question. <clears throat> While I was going through some old material, books and, and previous messages I had heard or given on, on giving, I came across uh, a note that I had scribbled in the margins of a book, that I had apparently been reading around 1991 at the start of the Gulf War when the term shock and awe was prevalent in the world. And I wrote this. <clears throat> this is the shock and awe phase of spiritual growth. Most people never get here. Drop that on your old sin nature. And then I went on in, in a more reasonably sized script to write, giving is not just for the financial needs of the church, it is for the spiritual growth of the church, each individual, and our testimony to the world. And you might wonder what I was responding to with all of those incredibly insightful comments. And it was a statement by a guy named O.S. Hawkins, who was, and I think still is, the CEO of Guidestone, which is an organization that manages all of the annuities, that's the retirement funds, for the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, he's a money guy. But he's also a pretty devout Christian guy. Now, which button makes that go forward? Yeah, that worked. So there you can see my actual original scribbles in the, in the margin there. <clears throat> and here's what it said. Here's what OS Hawkins wrote. The principal hindrance to the advancement of the kingdom of God is greed. It is the chief obstacle to heaven-sent revival. It seems that when the back of greed is broken, the human spirit soars into regions of unselfishness. I believe it is safe to say there can be no continuous revival without hilarious giving. And I fear no contradiction. Wherever there is hilarious giving, there will soon be revival. Now, that word hilarious is a reference to uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which says God loves a cheerful giver. But almost all theologians or biblical scholars agree that that word cheerful is highly emphasized. So a lot of times you'll hear people talk about hilarious giving. That's how God wants us to give we want. He wants us to enjoy it, to love to do it. So I, I want you to understand that what the Bible says about our giving, and specifically today about the offering, is important to our overall spiritual health, not just the financial needs of the church. And one more clarification. I want and I'm talking this morning specifically about the offering, capital T, capital O. It's this thing we do in the church. It does not include the charitable gifts that you might give to other organizations or to individuals even if you do it in the name of the Lord. The offering is to be presented within the church in humility to express gratitude and obedience and honor to God. It is a critical part of God's plan for the role of the church in the world. Do not mistake or think you can replace your offering with gifts given elsewhere. I think that's a really important thing that I've learned from preparing this message. Remember, this is a spiritual issue, not a financial issue. So with that said, and with no further delay, let's get into what I'm calling the milestones of the offering in the scriptures. The first one is based on the reading we had this morning um, from Genesis. And I think here I have it in a different translation. And I'll read it. If you're familiar with this Bible story, you know that Cain's anger eventually results in the first murder. Cain kills his brother Abel over this. But we're not going to dwell on that today. Let's just first recognize the root cause. Cain was angry. Have you ever been offended or angry with someone who was really just trying to do something good or nice? I once saw a t-shirt, maybe it was a bumper sticker, and it made me chuckle. These kind of things, I have a weird sense of humor. It said, spiritual people really annoy me. And why would I find that funny? Because it captures all of our condition. We all feel this way. If we are not in fellowship with God and we encounter someone who is, because the contrast between light and darkness is really uncomfortable. Spiritual people can be so annoying sometimes. God's response to anger in this situation in scripture is is pretty amazing. And I think we should all try to remember it, especially when we become angry, especially when we're angry at God. He says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. If you do right, don't you know you'll be accepted? You see that the door is always open to do what's right. You always have that option a choice you have, but our big mistake is because of pride, we continue in our error and refuse to turn around. We will likely never know the exact problem that Cain had with his offering. It has nothing to do with grain versus meat. The grain offerings are are described in the Bible That's something that God requires it has nothing to do with... He he brought, it says, some of the first of, of his, of his uh, crops. So that's not the issue. It's something in Cain's heart. It's the thing that made him get angry. So we want to take away some nuggets of truth from this, and I'm going to st- develop this list of golden nuggets, which you can pick up at the end of the service. Dave will hand them out. But here's the first two of them. It is possible to do religious activities in a way that does not please God. I don't care what it is. You could be preaching in a way that does not please God. He might still use the message. You could be cleaning. Dave, I'm not talking about you. though. You, you could be serving meals. You could be laying your life down in a way that does not please God. So watch yourself. Part two is the option to do things right is always available. So there you go, that's the lesson we get from Cain and Abel, the the first offering in the Bible. The next milestone we're gonna look at is is theologically very important, but real easy to miss. Um, I think it's three verses here in the Bible And it's only mentioned in two other places. It's the story of Melchizedek. Raise your hand if you've ever heard about Melchizedek. Hey, good for you. Um, Here's the background story. Abram, who was told by God to leave his home and travel to who knows where, and he did it out of obedience, and then he settled down in the countryside because he had lots of herds and flocks and, and animals and family members, But in that same area, there were several cities. And Abram's nephew, Lot, decided to go live in the city. Now, one day, four foreign kings, kings from four other cities, show up with their armies to do evil. And the kings of the five cities around where Abram was living go out with their armies to discourage them and unkind words are spoken, and feelings are hurt, and there's a big battle. And the four kings, the four foreign kings, whoop the five kings, ransack the cities, take all of the gold and jewels and t- animals and all the people as captives and head back to their own home. Now, one poor guy escaped from this battle and goes and tells Abram, hey, this, these other kings just came and took everything, and your son, your." Nephew Lot is with them. So Abram gathers up 318 of his clansmen, goes out and chases these five kings, catches them, and whoops them. (laughs) Gets all, refrees all the captives, gets all the plunder back. And, And so now we have Abram is a military hero. He has all the treasure, all the animals, and has freed all the people, so the kings of five cities owe him essentially their kingdom. That's the the setting we have when suddenly Melchizedek appears. And there's the, the verse. Melchizedek, king of Salem. We don't know where Salem is. Brought out bread and wine. We don't know why he brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. There are more things we don't know about Melchizedek than the few things we do know, which is exactly the point you'll see in a moment. We know that he was called priest of God Most High. We don't know who gave him that title. He blessed Abram. We don't know why he felt qualified to stand between God and Abram and pronounce a blessing. He served bread and wine. Other than the fact that those are staples of life, we have no reason to know why he would choose those things except prophetically. We don't know where he came from. He's never mentioned before this. We don't know who anointed him priest. We don't even know where Salem is. We don't know if he wore priestly robes or an ephod on his breast like the Hebrew priests did later. We don't know who his ancestors or his descendants were. and We don't know where he went after this event. In Psalm 110, which is a messianic Psalm, it's describing the Messiah It can only be the Messiah, which you can determine by the characteristics of of the person that's being spoken of. And it says this You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know how in the Catholic Church there are orders like Jesuits and Franciscans. What they're saying is, in the same way that Melchizedek was a valid priest, Jesus or Messiah, you are a priest. And in the book of Hebrews, the author quotes this psalm in order to stress how Jesus is the better priest, better than all the Hebrew priests, the Levites, who served according to the law of Moses. He is not a priest according to the law, but according to a direct announcement of God Most High. He came directly from God and returned directly to God. Just like Melchizedek, apparently. But why? What does this have to do with our offering? Get back to the point, right, Joe? In the next verse, Genesis 14 20, we read Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Of everything. A tenth of everything. A tenth. Of all that he had just acquired, why a tenth? Who told Abram that that was the right amount to give? There was no law. The the Hebrew laws aren't going to show up for another 400 years. It was not a tax or an assessment or a toll levied by Melchizedek or anyone else it wouldn't have been to receive a greater blessing. Melchizedek had just invoked the highest blessing of God Most High on Abram. I think this was just Abram's response to that blessing. His action can only be motivated out of gratitude to God for the success that he had been granted and to recognize the priestly role of Melchizedek. God didn't get all this stuff, Melchizedek did. Abram gave a tenth of all he had to Melchizedek, who then disappeared. (laughs) As one theologian has said, if it wasn't the law, and it wasn't a demanded payment, then it had to be inspired by the Spirit of God. And it reminded me of what, this, this statement reminded me of what we've read in Galatians. So much of what we're going through here I'm thinking back to Galatians that we've studied over the summer. Remember in Galatians 5.18, it said, if you walk in the spirit, you are not under the law. Here are some golden nuggets from the story of Melchizedek. Ooh, got kind of a funny font there. Abram's offering was not random. It wasn't haphazard. It was inspired by God and was a systematic act that required effort and discipline to take an inventory, to divide by 10. He had to get out his calculator. (laughs) And and to determine what it was he was going to give. It was not an estimate or his leftovers. I think that's the important thing about this message, Not necessarily the 10%, although we'll get back to that. His offering of 10% was not a legalistic act because there was no law determining it. It was creative spirituality. Here's Abram. He's had this wonderful success. He's met this priest, and he says, I know, I'll give him 10%. Just like that. Just inspired by the Spirit of God. And he followed through on it. He did what the Spirit asked. So that's Melchizedek. The next milestone is one you might expect. It's what does the law say about our offerings? It says a lot. (laughs) It says about four chapters worth of just offerings. The book of Leviticus presents all the laws given to Moses for how the Hebrews were to worship God, organize themselves, support the clan designated as the priests, and all other matters of life as God's chosen people. As far as offerings go, the book starts out with the offerings, and there are several of them. There are burnt offerings covered in chapter 1, grain offerings in chapter 2, fellowship offerings in chapter 3 sin offerings in chapter four, and even a category for unintentional sins. You know, the things that are wrong, that you don't even know are wrong. And you can make an offering for that. But how do we relate to that? How do we, as modern day Christians, relate our offerings to these animal sacrifices and burnt offerings? Um, if you notice, the grill is tipped over, so we're not going to start burnt offerings for quite, quite a while. First thing, it's important to realize that the Levites, that is the priestly group, lived off the offerings of meat and grain. That was their grocery store. Second, since not everyone was a farmer or owned bulls and goats and sheep or any of the other things that are typically burnt and offered up as offerings, animals, could be purchased, and in some cases, the purchase price could simply be given as an offering. So there's this whole economy that grew up around God's command to to bring your offerings into the house of the Lord. And out of that economy, the Levites got their share to live on. That's the way it worked. Um, I was going to say a little bit more about that later, but When God is, uh, within Scripture, when we see how God divides up the promised land among the tribes of Israel, everyone gets a share except the Levites. Their share is the tithes and offerings. And that's how God cared for them. A lot of people are still hung up on the 10% um, that was mentioned by, that Abram gave to Melchizedek. But the law, when we get into this area of the law, the 10% is only hinted at in two verses. And this is way down in chapter 27, almost like an afterthought. In 2730, it says, A tithe, that means a tenth, of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And in verse 32, every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. Excuse me. There's no place that it ever explains or goes into whether this tithe applies equally to the furniture that a carpenter might make or the cloth that a weaver might weave or the bricks that a brickmaker might make, could it be that all the offerings an Israelite was expected to bring added up to more than 10%? See, it's not like a speed limit. 10% is not our giving limit. And if you live in New England, it's not even, you, you double that easy. Um, so let's not the goal is not to limit our giving and our offering. So from these statements, from Leviticus and some future interpretations that we see of this law, which I'll read to you in a minute, we can take away some golden nuggets. But first, uh, some of the interpretations. In Numbers 18, we see the statement, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance. Remember, all the other tribes got land. The Levites got all the tithes in Israel in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. And then that point is echoed in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, which says, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. All right? In Malachi, um, is an interesting point or a clarification it says all the tithe, in tithes and offerings you are under a curse your whole nation because you are robbing me bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and from that we'll take a principle and finally in 1 Timothy 5:18 we read and this is quoting Deuteronomy for scripture says do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain And the worker deserves his wages. So here are some of the golden nuggets we'll add from the law. The workers in the temple are compensated from the offering. The offerings can and should be stored for use in times of need. And what I think is a real important point to remember in lots of different facets of life, anyone who works ought to be paid. So there you go. Milestone number four, we're into the New Testament. Then I'm sure there are many more good ones out of the Old Testament. But let's move into the New Testament, because this is another first, what I call the first con job. It's an interesting story of how not to bring your offering to the Lord. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Again, some background. We're in Jerusalem. The church is young and new and growing. Thousands of people are getting saved at a time. And one of the new believers who it says is much loved, his name was Joseph, he had a nickname, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He went and sold a field and brought all of the money he got from that field and brought it to the church leaders who would have been like Peter, James, John, and that crew and just laid the whole thing at their feet. Now Ananias and Sapphira were a couple. They must have been aware of this and thought, hey, we could get a cool nickname if we do something like that. You know, <laughs> Call us the caring couple, I don't know. <clears throat> so they had a field and they went and sold it. And we don't know what their motive really was. We don't know what their hang-up was. Maybe they had some legitimate bills. Maybe they had a kid in college or, or something they had to worry about. But they decided to bring out just a portion of their, sale of their profits to the, the leaders of the church. And the text makes it clear that both Ananias and Sapphira lied about the amount they sold the land for. And there's only one reason to do that. It's to look good in the eyes of the church. To make someone think you're something you're not. Peter, you know, given a special sense of judgment by the Holy Spirit, asks Ananias... Or or confronts him and says, how is it, I actually have this on a slide. How is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Now doesn't this sound familiar? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Kind of like what God said to Cain. You know, you have choices to make. Go ahead and make them. Just don't try to be something you're not. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And Ananias drops dead. Now I've often prayed for the gift of striking people dead. (laughs) So far, God hasn't heard that prayer. But that's what happens. Ananias just keels over and... Peter tells him to take his body out because you don't want to be contaminated or whatever. And then before Sapphira is even aware that this has happened, she comes in and and Peter asks her how much the land was sold for. And she maintains the lie. And she drops over dead. And it says that the fear of the Lord spread through the church pretty quickly after that. (laughs) As you might imagine. So what's the takeaway from this story? What's the golden nugget? Is it give all your belongings to the church or else? That's what it sounds like. But no, no. Um, it's don't try to appear to be something you're not. You've got to you know, be honest. God knows your condition. He knows some people have a lot to give, some don't. Just be what you are and follow the Holy Spirit in your life and and straightforward. Be straightforward. Don't try to appear to be something you're not. Again, that I was reminded of Galatians, our study in Galatians, one of the verses from Kyle's messages that I really liked was in 6.3. It said, If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to anyone else. You don't have to compare yourself to anyone. You don't have to be anyone else. You want to be who God made you to be. Our final milestone is the example of Christ himself, the best offering. Whoops. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, we read, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice to God. Again, the author of Hebrews clarifies the meaning of that offering in a couple of verses. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 19 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And Hebrews 10:17. says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus' offering paid the bill for the debt of all sin. There's no further debt. There's no balance forward. And the important thing, the important application of that is our offerings are not effective or necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. Don't think you're buying God's grace with your offerings. Whether you're giving money, your time, your energy, nothing more can be offered to pay for sin. Now, I haven't said much until now about the relationship between an offering and a sacrifice. For an offering to be meaningful, it ought to cost you something. Maybe that's what Cain did wrong. Maybe Cain was just offering the grain that they didn't need. Because what was there, Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, you know? How much grain do you need? (laughs) King David. when he was told to build an altar to the Lord in order to avert a plague that had been sent to punish Israel on the threshing floor of Aruna, Aruna is a guy, he went to that place and Aruna offered him the land, the oxen, the yoke, the wood for the yokes, the wood for his sleds to, to burn on the offering as a gift. Here, let me give it all to you. And David said, no but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And the Lord responded and David's plea to avert the plague was, was, was honored and saved Israel. Jesus sacrificed. And it wasn't just the pain and the humiliation of the crucifixion. I think it was one of the songs we sang, kind of referred to this passage from Philippians that's so familiar. Um, it even has a title. What's it? the, the, the on, Kyle. The passage. <laughs> Um, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I firmly believe that Jesus' sacrifice and this condescension, we call this, was not a temporary thing. It was an eternal thing. Jesus today occupies a glorified body, not because he's God, but because he's been risen from the dead and glorified by God in the same way that you and I will be if we claim him as Savior. He is the first of many. So the path he's on is the same path we're going to be on, or are on, hopefully. He, he didn't return to be God, even though he is God. It blows the mind. But he is the firstborn of many in this. So in some sense, the divinity, the position which he gave up to come to earth, he sacrificed to save us, that's an eternal sacrifice. I don't understand it completely but I think it's true. So here's the, the point. Finally, the bottom one is give yourself up as an offering. When Jesus was asked if taxes should be paid to Caesar, he said, show me the coin you used to pay the taxes. And of course, the coin had an image of Caesar engraved on it. So he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. So how much should we, who, are, who bear the image of God, offer our entire being to him as an acceptable sacrifice? Let's pray. It's just my throat hurts. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word, the richness in it, the the beauty of it, <clears throat> the depth of it. And every word we read, we know that your Holy Spirit is here to enlighten, to, to explain to us, to open our hearts and our minds, to understand, and more importantly, to apply it. To see what it means to our lives. So God, we ask that Uh, You would take each life here in, in all of its fullness and in all of its wholeness and all of its aspects and in all of the events going on and all the decisions we make and understand what is an acceptable offering to you, oh God. Take our whole lives and where necessary, give us the joy of cheerfully, hilariously participating in your work through what we offer up to you. And we ask you to accept these things in the glory and honor of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord.